Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast, hosted by Aaron Fifield. Welcome to Chat with Traders, episode 173. My guest of this episode is Mike Katz, who also appeared on the podcast last year for episode 156. To refresh your memory though, Mike's a short-term equities trader and he's the co-founder slash managing partner of proprietary trading firm Seven Points Capital. The purpose of doing this episode was purely to have a very specific and a very detailed discussion about how Mike traded rideshare company Lyft on the first day of its IPO, being the 29th of March 2019. To make it easier for you to follow along with this episode, I've actually included intraday charts with Mike's entries and exits in the show notes. Go to chatwithtraders.com slash 173 and feel free to tweet me at chatwithtraders and let me know if you dig this type of episode format. If so, I may try to do others similar to this in the future. Also, while you're listening, please remember the information shared during this episode or during any episode is not a recommendation to buy or sell any of the securities mentioned you are entirely responsible for your own trading decision. And that's all from me. Here is Mike Katz. Let's do it. Cool. Let's, uh, let's waste no time. So I do want to say to you, actually, feel free to be as technical as you want, uh, be as specific as you like. And, you know, if there's any extra details that you can share, uh, by all means, please do. Uh, because, you know, this episode is a little bit different to most episodes, right? Because the pure focus of this episode is to talk about how you traded the Lyft IPO. So I guess my first question, it might seem quite obvious, but what got you interested in trading the Lyft IPO? Like, why did you feel as though there could be opportunity in this? Yeah, I think this is a good format. Uh, definitely get as technical as you like. 
Um, a lot of my videos are going to be coming out now on YouTube going forward. They're going to be a lot more technical and they focus on this type of discussion. So this plays right into it. Um, what got us interested in the Lyft IPO is my partner and I, Mike Mangieri, we've been talking about it for a while. And basically, the IPO market has been a lot slower than what it used to be, right? Uh, you have half as many publicly traded firms as you had, say, 20 years ago. And the rate at which these IPOs are coming out, it's definitely slowed. So the backdrop is that the public is hungry for IPOs. You don't get too many of them. And, you know, Lyft is a big name that everybody knows all around the world. And when they announced that they're coming out, there was definitely a lot of interest by institutions, by public, by traders, anybody who's in the market. So... Then they started bringing up the pricing of the offering every time, right? I think they started in the 50s and 60s. They ended up pricing it at 72. And there was definitely a lot of hype surrounding the IPO. Now, when they came out public, the valuation was $24 billion, roughly. Uber's going to be at 120, they're saying. That's a lot. That's just ridiculous, right? They're, I mean, um, Lyft is losing $900 million a year, right? That's, that's a little bit out of control. So $24 billion is a bigger market cap than JetBlue, um, American Airlines, Delta, Ford, all these companies that are just, you know, have a proven track record. So here comes Lyft and... Every time anybody takes a ride with Lyft, it comes out to them losing about $17 per ride, right? So every time you press that button, Lyft picks you up, $17 is what Lyft loses. So they're nowhere near where they need to be, I think, to be profitable. And there was a lot of hype surrounding it. They kept on bringing up the price of the offering over and over, just squeezing out as much as the public was willing to pay. And then when, when it finally opened, you know, there was just less demand. There were more sellers there. So that was the thesis behind the kind of the fundamental side of things, that they're, they're losing money. There's a lot of hype. And if selling started to come into the market, that could potentially be a decent unwind. Can you talk to how raising the price of the offering works? As far as I know... I'm not a banker, right? But as far as I know, they they have a roadshow and they go around and they f- try to figure out what investors are going to be willing to pay. Right? Obviously, when they're selling shares to the public, they're going to try to get as much as possible. And the bankers, it's in their interest to get as much as possible for the company because their compensation is also based on how well they do for them. So I think what they do is they gauge the interest from the public. And if there's more demand than than the shares that's going to be supplied, they're more than willing to bump up the price until they find that equilibrium. And they brought it up to the point where, you know, demand met supply and it was just... It was just a little bit too high. You see that a lot. You see that in, you know, in, in hyped IPOs, you see that quite a bit. You know, Facebook and then Spotify, I remember being one of them. If, if they keep on bringing the price, you got to be careful. Those couple of things you said just before are actually quite extraordinary, aren't they? That Lyft had a bigger market cap than companies like Ford. That's insane. It's, it's unbelievable. And, 
people don't think about it that way, right? Um, but at, at the end of the day, these are still companies. These are still valuations. And I don't claim to be a fundamental guy. That's, you know, above my pay grade. But simple things like that, that you're just comparing apples to apples, apples to, to oranges. It's like, eh, this doesn't really add up. Yeah. And then the fact they're losing $17 per ride. Wow. <laughs> yeah. How's that in the business? <laughs> yeah. I remember reading this article. I, I think it was on Market Watch. It was like, they lose $17 per ride if you divide, you know, their, their loss for the year by the amount of rides that they had. And it's just, you got to be crazy not to ride on Uber, right? Because they're pretty much, you're exploiting an inefficiency. Mm. Yeah. Actually, I don't even know if we have Lyft in Australia. And if they do, then Uber certainly dominates. You know, we have Lyft here in New York City. And the way it works in New York is a little bit different than the way it works in, in other states. In New York, the taxis have a little bit of protection where Uber drivers and Lyft drivers, they still have to register with the TLC and get all kinds of documents, which is good. But it brings up the costs of the rides um, for for the uh, for the riders, you know, I remember when I go to Florida, and recently I was in LA, and during the week of the IPO, my partner Mike was in Florida visiting our Florida office, and you know, you get rides down there for four or five dollars because you know anybody downloads the app, has a car, I think goes through a basic background check, you know, it can drive. So here in New York, it's a little more expensive, but they're they're everywhere. Right. Okay. So. I presume you probably had a bit of a bias on the direction that this stock might trade for the day once it came online. Right. Right. Absolutely. So everything we just spoke about is great. You have a thesis, you have a bias, but, you know, I tweeted that morning, I remember saying, you know, I located some shares and I'm ready to go long or short depending on what the stock wants to do, what the price action is telling me. So here I am sitting there with a thesis that, okay, this is potentially going to unwind. And whether it does actually sell off kind of helps me get more aggressive with my thinking. Had, had the stock opened up and got and started to drift higher, then my thesis is to the downside. So I'll probably take a small loss or or maybe even try to participate on the long side, but the conviction is not going to be there. The conviction is going to be there whenever I have a thesis and then the the price action lines up with that thesis, if that makes sense. It does, yeah. Was it easy enough for you to get borrow on a stock uh, that had just IPO'd? Um, it's on a symbol by symbol basis. You know, we have a few parties that we deal with for locates, and uh, this one seemed like it was available across the street for most, pretty much anybody who wanted it. Um, sometimes, I'd say about half the time, the shares are not available, but uh, this time it was, and it was pretty easy to borrow. Okay, interesting. And are the fees, like the borrow fees on a IPO stock, typically higher than normal, or is it uh, just the same regardless? I think it just comes down to the supply and demand of the actual locate. So from what I understand from the traders that I deal with on the lending desk, if you think of the locate itself as a security, they have a bid and an ask. And they trade out there 
And, you know, if there's more demand for, for the locate, then the price of that locate will increase and vice versa. Okay, yeah. And are there restrictions for investors? So anyone who got the stock before it actually came online, who was, you know, allocated some shares of Lyft, do they have any restrictions on when they can sell or can they get uh, allocated shares before it's available to the public and then can they sell immediately once the stock comes online? Honestly, I, I don't know. The, the real answer is I don't know. I know that you know some investors, when they invest pre-IPO, it depends on you know what terms they invest under, but some of them have a lockup of six months. Employees might have another type of lockup. I, I'm not sure exactly um, if everybody has a lockup, but it doesn't seem like it just the way it trades on day one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're right there. <laughs> I also love the fact that you're not 100% sure about these things yet can still trade it and um, do extremely well out of it. I mean, that it just sort of goes to show that you don't have to know all the granular details about these sort of things. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's a great observation. After doing this for 20 years and seeing many traders come and go, I, I firmly believe that it comes down to price action. You could think what you want. You could have the best research. You know, I didn't get to listen to this recent tweet that you sent out, but uh, I want to go back and hear that video about is more information really going to get you better trades, right? Um, and I don't know. Sometimes too much information is not always going to help. And, and just having information, you know, that also builds on, let's say you have the best thesis, and your conviction is through the roof. That's great. When you're going to be right, you're going to probably do very well. But that also sets you up to, to have a major loss. Because if your conviction is that high, then you're going to be less willing to part with the position if it doesn't work. Therefore, you know, um, you, you set yourself up for a really big loss. It's like, you know, you look down, you have pocket aces when you're playing, right? When you have pocket aces, either you're going to raise and most people fold, 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 fold. And then you get a couple of players and maybe you're lucky you get it all in once in a while. But most of the time you're going to make a little bit with pocket aces, right? But then somebody else might flop a set or something better and you're putting it all in. So you're, you're very committed to that hand and most likely when you're going to lose, you're going to lose big. So I don't think that having necessarily having all the information is necessarily that good. I mean, back in October, I, I took a huge hit because I had so much conviction on a trade and I was just not willing to part with that, with that uh, position. Right. Was this, uh, was it PTI? Yeah. Okay. PTI. Okay. We might try and get to that if we, if we have some time at the end. As painful as it might be, uh, I, I don't mind talking about it. <laughs> sure. So you, kind of spoke a little bit about your bias uh, and your thesis on this stock uh, just leading up before it actually came online. You know, you had kind of a short bias to begin with. How much had you actually thought through a plan on how you were going to trade the stock, like how you were going to attack it once it actually came online? Like what was your thought process going into the actual trade? With this type of a trade and probably most trades, my thought process is I like to draw reference points either in my mind or on the chart, right? And, and these reference points are really important for me. 
Because when I start looking at, at, at the symbol and price action starts to unfold, I start comparing price compared to that reference point. So when this opened up, I think it was at around 88, that gives me a reference point right away. And whether we trade higher or lower, that tells me which way is supply and demand, who's in control. So this the symbol quickly drops to 87, 86s, and then comes back a little bit, but just can't get back to the opening price of 88. And so initially, I was thinking, I'd like to put a position on. If I'm wrong and this thing starts to make highs, gets above 88, then gets 89, maybe even 90, then that means I'm wrong. This thing's going to go higher. Maybe I'll have to try it later, closer at 100, um, or just you know bail on the whole idea completely because price action is is so strong. But when it opened, it went 88, and then quickly went to 87. Traded through a massive bid at 87. I think it was like 200,000 shares. Went a little bit lower and came back up, but then couldn't get back to where it was where it started trading, and then started curling down again. So that was my cue to start trading on the short side okay just looking at the chart here it looks like when it opened where did it open here oh yeah went up to about yeah okay i'm following you so when did you actually get your first trade on it looks like it was pretty pretty soon after the open yeah so i remember it kind of went through 87 that it went through 88 but just couldn't hold 88 for a second it just it just went up there and then right back below and quickly got back to 87 and even lower so when i saw that i I just started shorting at 87 and change and then um a few minutes later it ended up coming down and below 87 again and it didn't make it back up to where i shorted my initial position so this is how I think, right? So if, if I'm wrong and this thing goes up, then I'm wrong on my starter. I, I put on, I think it was 87.28 is my first trade. It had that thing gone up to 88, 89, 90, I'm done. I'll, I'll take a loss on the starter. But instead, it, it ended up going lower and it kind of confirms what I'm thinking. Price action is saying, yes, there's more supply here. I ended up shorting some more I think um, eighty below eighty-seven, like eighty-six and change. So I I like to add to my winner. I don't like to add to my loser. Okay, now if you'd so that very first entry, if you'd gone in and it had gone against you, what sort of risk were you dealing with on that trade? Like, was it just a was it a was it a pretty small? Uh, you described it as kind of a starter position. So was that that obviously wasn't sort of as much size as you wanted to get on. That was just a little bit just to sort of feel it out. Yeah, exactly. I'll never put on the whole position at once. It's very rare for me to do that. Um, I like to see green on my screen. So when I put on a position, if it's not working, it's most likely not going to work right away. So if it starts to work right away, then that means I might be in a good position. Um, The ones that end up being a loss just end up, reversing pretty early on and going the other way. So um, I'll put on a starter and sometimes, you know, quarter to half of what I want to put on. And then as price confirms, then I, I can get bigger. And as 
as I have now new reference points where I can move my stop closer, then I, I can get even even bigger. Okay. So going into this trade, did you have kind of an idea about what sort of size you wanted to build up to if things started to move in your favor? I did, but it's also very fluid. It also depends on liquidity. Um, liquidity is always a concern, especially with something that can move multiple dollars very quickly, right? Um, liquidity is definitely in the back of my mind, but I did have a decent idea of what I want to get to, how much I want to risk on the trade. It all comes down to what I want to risk on the trade. I don't really think in terms of shares. It's I risk X dollars per trade. You know, this one a little bit more than usual because it doesn't come around as often. Um, but I think in terms of what I want to risk per trade, and then I figure out where my stop goes, where I, where I cut off the trade, and then I figure out how many shares to put up. And then it started working quickly. That was the key with this. Um, the, the quicker it starts to work, the more red I see on the screen and on the tape, meaning uh, more sellers. What was interesting was I saw sellers on the offer soaking showing 100 shares, some guy showing at 87. And then all of a sudden, instead of 100 shares, there are thousands, tens and hundreds of thousands of shares trading at 87 on the offer. And this guy's only showing 100. So there was a lot of soaking on the offer there. And then all of a sudden, you see offers jump ahead of him. So that tells me that all the buying that came in was absorbed. And then not only did all the buying get absorbed, now you have sellers coming in and, and saying, no, I want to sell it lower than where this guy just sold it. Right. Now, I noticed, uh, actually, I wanted to ask you around that. You know, this first entry and then you added a couple times shortly after, you know, kind of, I think it was about five minutes later. Was this what you would call a setup? Like, was this one of your setups or was this a pure kind of price action play? This was definitely more of a price action type of a play. And this is kind of where I thrive in my trading. I like to get everything compartmentalized into setups in my trading, right? But, you know, after 20 years of doing this, it, it becomes hard to just put everything in, in its own little compartment. And, and I feel like I trade my best whenever I am just reacting to price and reacting to the action that I see unfold in front of me. Now, were you happy with the, the prices that you got set in at the beginning of this trade? Like, did you have, like, where was your conviction at this point? Did you feel confident that you'd got, got set at a, good, at a good starting price? Yes, I did. I did. Uh, I felt like I had a good entry pretty much um, as good as I wanted without being the first guy to trade, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it, it moved really fast. I was The stock traded very quickly. And then what I noticed was that every dollar level, the symbol had quite a bit of liquidity there. So when it dropped to 87, there was like 200,000 shares on the bid exactly at 87. And then when it dropped to 86, same thing. There was like 300,000 shares on the bid at 86. So in order for me to create some cash flow, what I end up doing is I could buy a piece of my position, about half, a little bit above 86 so that I can kind of lean on that bid there at 86. And the first time it tags 86, most likely it's going to bounce. And, and I'll be able to scalp for a dollar 
So whatever I cover at 86.02, let's say, I'll reshort it back on a pop to 87. So that way, it, it helps me do two things. It helps me create some cash flow, trade around a core position with a piece of my position, right? I don't want to do it with my whole position because if I can't get it back, it's going to be hard for me to re-enter. But if I'm creating some cash flow with, with half my position, then um, the profits are starting to rack up a little bit. But more importantly, I'm able to feel how easy it is for me to first cover and then reshort that position at a better price. So I don't want to buy anything unless I, I can reshort it at a higher price. And whether or not I can do that is now information for me to tell me where, uh, which way supply and demand is, is favored towards. Okay. Now, when you take that partial cover uh, at, I think it was 86, how much are you taking off? Like what portion relative to your full position size are you taking off? Almost half. Almost half. Where it's meaningless for me to do it, and still get some cash flow, and then um, where it's not too big, where if it keeps going, then I have nothing left. And what I won't do is I won't buy at 86, and then if I can't sell it at 87, I'll, and it keeps going lower, I won't buy at 85, and at 84, and 83. I, I don't want to reduce my position size, especially if I can't reshort it, right? If I can't reshort it, it's telling me that something is wrong and there's a lot of weakness here. When you're saying you can't reshort it, what do you mean by that? Like you can't short any, like there's no pops for you to short. Mm-hmm. Yes, I can't resell at a higher price. So the trades where I sold 87 and change, I sold at 86 and change, and then I got a first cover at 86. And then I was looking for a pop to 87, and I got it. Okay, so you don't want to be shorting into like new lows um, and as you don't want to be shorting into momentum, essentially. The, the, when I will do that is whenever I can't get my fill on a pop. So if I can't get my fill at 87 and now the, new, the lows are 86 and I covered at 86 and every time it bounces, let's say it bounced to... 86.75 and then the next time it got to 86 it only bounced to 86.50 and you can see that the bounces are getting lower and lower like a bouncing ball then I'm going to time that 86 crack to try to put it back on. Okay now were there any tills on this trade early in the session let's say within the first kind of 30 minutes that signal to you or uh, yeah signal to you that this this move there was likely more behind it, like it was likely going to continue lower for some time. The main thing was the amount of volume that this was trading. There was a lot of interest in in the symbol, and I think in the first five minutes it traded ten million shares. I was a third of the float, if I'm not mistaken. A third of the float just turned over in the first five minutes. And then in the next in the next five minutes, it traded another six million shares. It was just unbelievable amount of volume. So the more volume that it trades, the more it I, I equate volume with fuel, and there's more fuel to the move. Um, so at the same time, 
every trade that's happening, we're, we're going lower and lower. And, and what I use is a volume profile on my chart, which displays the volume to the right instead of the vertical bars. And then we kept on trading lower than the area where most volume was traded. So that tells me that everybody who bought is out of the money and everybody who shorted is in the money. So I, I want to be on the side of the winners. Can you speak to how you were covering as the price was going down? So during uh, from, what was it, about 12 o'clock till about 1 p.m., um, you covered and it looks like another three or four times uh, as price was dropping. Can you speak about sort of why you were covering at those areas? Like was there any rationale behind that? If you look at the at the chart, you'll see that they were at – whole dollar figures. So 83 was a cover there. I think that was at around, I want to say 12, 15, 12, 20. The first time it tagged 83, I tried to cover there at, um, at 83, right above 83. And the biggest bounce it gave was to 83 and a half, right? And there was, I believe about, 400,000 shares at 83 that was bid for it, it traded through that and the and the only bounce it got was to 8350 and had it, this thing bounce it to 84 I would have been able to reshort my my cover there but I wasn't able to do that so now instead of covering at 82 which you see I didn't do any of that I the rest of my covers were at 80 I didn't cover at 82 I didn't cover at 81 I was now because I couldn't Reshort, and because um, it's so weak, I'm being a lot more passive with my covers, and I waited till the big figure, the eighty-dollar figure, and then there was about half a million shares, uh, maybe even more, but the big bidder was a half a million shares at eighty, and that took about three hours to break through, so that was a good support level to to do most of the covering there. Now, when you're covering some of your position, how are you actually doing that? Are you just using a, a market order and you're just um, buying into the offers or do you um, put a bid sort of in the book at the price that you want to cover some at sort of in advance? I'll leave, I'll leave a bid out above 80, for example. So I'll be at 80 spot 10, 80 spot 05. Um, and I'll have an order out waiting and I won't display my whole size because, you know, with the HFTs, it, it might just go tag it and then, um, you know, it'll just bounce off of it. I'll never get the fill. So I could show maybe 10% of what I want to buy and I'll have the order sitting out there. That way, in case there's a big flush, a lot of times you don't have the opportunity to click the button and buy offers. Um, so I will have orders out there waiting. So how do you hide... Uh, some of your size? Mainly through just doing those iceberg type of reserve orders, right, where um, most exchanges offer that on EdgeX, New York, um, pretty much all the exchanges offer that, where if, if you're looking to buy 5,000, you only show 500. And then when you get filled on 500, your bid doesn't go away, it just replenishes for more and more. Mm-hmm. When it replenishes, are you still in the same in the same queue position? No, that's a good point. So, if there is, let's say, two thousand on the bid, and you add in order to buy five thousand, display five hundred, right? 
Um, the 2,000 has to trade, and then you get filled on your 500. If anybody came in after you, then they have to get filled. So only 500 gets the queue priority, and then the other 500 goes to the back of the queue. And then it just keeps repeating that. But this thing was doing so much volume that I don't think it even mattered. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you could have just done whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it looks like you covered uh, your full short position. Must have been about 20 minutes past one, uh, where it sort of, I guess it kind of looked to you as though that 80 level was maybe going to be quite a strong support level and um, the price started to bounce a little bit. Can you just talk us through why you decided to cover your full short position at that point? Sure. So we got the, the initial flush to 80. I did quite a bit of covering there and now I have a third of the position left. And from that point, we bounced to 81.50 and then it comes back to 80 again. And if, if it's going to break 80, I'm looking to hit back into that 80 short. All right. So I'm, there's 500,000 shares in the bid. Once that starts to go down to 400, 300, 200, I'm going to try to time it so that I try to get short again because that support that's there is, is starting to go away. But when it came back to 80, if you look at the chart right after one o'clock, around 110, 115, it just tagged it for a couple of minutes and then bounced again. And I don't think that it took off too much of that bid. So then it, it ended up going past that 8150 point where it bounced to before and it kind of made a higher high only for a second, but that was enough for me to take it off, uh, take off the remainder of the position. And at that point I was done with my initial short. Okay. That 8150 level, was that something that you had, you were kind of mentally thinking about your you know, when it came back to retest 80 and you, like, were you thinking this through in advance? You know, if it doesn't get through 80 and it gets back to 81.50, that's me done on this trade? Or was it just, you were just reading sort of the order flow tick by tick? No, that that was in advance. So um, 81.50, if it broke through that, that meant that it took out the previous high where it couldn't get through. And that tells me that now it could curl up and I no longer want to be short. Gotcha. Now, a lot of times it ends up being, you know, a, a fake out where it just takes out that level and reverses, but it is what it is, right? You can't win them all. That's the point where I no longer want to have risk on the trade. Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U.S. markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. Not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. 
Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. So you were out of this, this short position. What was your next move from there? So then I figured that um, 80 level, well, before we talk about the next one, I remember in the back of my head, I'm thinking the previous IPOs like Spotify and um, some of the other big ones, and they had some pretty big drops and just overlaying that over, over Lyft. Um, let's see, I don't remember the exact numbers on Spotify, but I, I remember that day, some of the traders we were sitting around going back and looking at Spotify. If I remember correctly, it had about from 150, it had about a $30 drop. And we're kind of trying to equate that over to Lyft. And it was in in the high 70s is was kind of our our measured move, just looking at how Lyft, um, how uh, Spotify behaved. So going into the trade, initially I'm targeting 80. And then it kind of stalls out at 80 because that's the big figure, right? There's a, there's a lot of liquidity there. And if it takes that out, I don't mind continuing on the short side. But once momentum starts to to leave the stock and instead of, you know, constant lower low, lower high, it's not just starting to go sideways and chop around, then I'm less interested in, in, in a continued momentum type of a trade. So at that point, I'm thinking if I can get any pullbacks to this 80 level, then I don't mind trading on the long side and buy it as closely as I can to 80 and lean on that big bid. So if there's a half a million shares there, if I can get some fills at 80 and a quarter, at 80, 20, then I'm risking, you know, 25, 30, 50 cents, whatever it is, to try to make now a few dollars on the long side. So I ended up getting long on, on a dip back on a retest of 80. And I think my fills were some at 80, 50, 80, 70, 80, 30 mainly, and then a lot at 80 and a quarter. And then it never ended up getting back to 80 for a while. So I felt like I had a good long position. And um, I, after two o'clock, it really started picking up volume again and some pretty big green candles. So I ended up adding to my winner and buying more above 81. Did you have, uh, did you feel as though this was a high probability trade or did you feel as though it was more a trade where you could just get, you know, a bit of size on and you could, with very limited risk? Exactly, it was very limited risk. Um, expected value is probably positive on this, but the win rate is not gonna be too high. Um, and I just figured that it has two benefits. One is, Maybe I can pick off a turnaround with low risk, but at the same time, it keeps me involved. And now if you know I still have my finger on the pulse, then I can actually time it to either go up or, or down again. And then at the same time, you know, I'm on Twitter and, and I love engaging. And then all of a sudden you hear a bunch of people talking really bearish about Lyft, you know, after it dropped from 88 to 80. <laughs> So, you know, I said, okay, maybe it's a little overdone. Everybody's excited about this thing going down. So well, maybe there could be a long trade in this. That was an interesting point that you said um, just before about how it kept you involved. I think that was an interesting yeah. choice of words. I feel that when I'm in a stock, when I'm trading and I have a position, I'm plugged in and I'm in the zone with it. 
when I trade well, I'm reading it well, and and for me to 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 have a feel from that from that symbol, I need to have some skin in the game. If I'm just watching it, you know, I'm watching the trades go by, I'm not as plugged in as as when I have a position on. And and a lot of times I'll you know if if I let's say I have an idea, I did some homework over the weekend, and I, I think this symbol needs to go up. Right, it's a decent long trade. I'll put on some small, just couple thousand shares just put it on just so that I, I'm forced to watch it and then I could go from there if it starts to work and it start the thesis is playing out I'll get some more if it ends up being a dud then okay I have a small position that nothing ever happened yeah was this the only stock that you were trading that day like were you purely focused solely on the lift IPO or were you also trading some other symbols too yeah, let's see. I don't think I was trading anything else. Let me just go back to my screen here. Yeah, so not a whole lot. I had a spy position. I had maybe a NVIDIA position, but tiny, nothing big. I was I was plugged into Lyft. Okay, nice. So at what point did you cover or exit this long position? So I got out, I think it was about a little after 2.30. Um Again, so I bought some near 80, 80, 50 is probably my average price. I added some more above 81. And then it ends up going to 82. Um, stalls out a little bit at 82, but then eventually reclaims 82 and gets above and goes to 82.50, right? Um, and, and then it just didn't have any more power. It, it couldn't get back to VWAP, which was near 84. Uh, it couldn't stay above 82. And then eventually it just couldn't hold that 82 level. 81.50 was the previous recent low. Once once it, it got below 81.50, uh, which it couldn't do before, I got out. And that was the end of that long. Now, it looks as though you timed, uh, not timed, but you you covered it at quite a good price or you got out of this long position at quite a good price because it was, it looks as though it was slightly above your most recent, like your last add to your long position. Was yeah, that, right around there. Was that kind of, is that how you normally manage these things? Um, it's more along the lines of it's, it's going down, it's drifting lower, it sold off over a dollar from its recent high. And um, it, it got below 81.50, which it couldn't do it before. It coincides a little bit with where I entered on, on my ad above 81. But um, I don't want to sell as it's going up. You know, I, I want to see if I want to give it some space. Okay. And then, and then once it decided to curl back down, I, I missed. You know, I, I ended up selling it a dollar off of that recent high, maybe a little more. But um, you know. I had to give it a chance to, to go up. Um, and then obviously the the trade later in the day uh, was through short through that $80 level. Can you just um, step us through uh, that trade in the last half hour of the day? Right. So the thinking behind that trade is the momentum trade that you mentioned earlier, right? Selling lows and um, and trying to join the trend and trying to uh, catch a quick crack in the stock. So it was about a half a million shares on the bid at 80. We come down around 1230. We tag it for the first time. It barely gets tagged for anything. 
Um, we bounce off of it. We go to 8150, and we come back. We don't really get back to 80 again, and then we get above 8150, right? And, and that's where I got long, and he goes to 82, 8250, and then and then comes right back to pretty much 80 again. So now there's this big bid there, and everybody who's watching it is very aware of it. There's a good chance that everybody who got long near 80 is is counting on that large bid to hold up. And if it doesn't, you know that the everybody's going to look to get out, and that could be like a waterfall type of a, of a break. Um, so at around 3:30. I, I ended up taking a stab at, at shorting at 80. And I remember it was around 300,000 shares on the bid. So it got hit for some, and I'm trying to time it, right? Um, and then instead of the whole bid being taken out, it just pops up and, and goes to, I think, 80.50 very quickly, 80.75, at which point I end up taking off half my position. So... I short 80, and then I want to see it work right away, right? And if it doesn't, I take off half right away. And if it, if it ends up going higher, you know, uh, above 81, 81.50, I'll take off the whole thing and I'll be done, right? Um, and I'll just chalk it up as a loss. But it, it, took, it hit 80. I, I took off half when it didn't want to go through. And then like 10 minutes later, it comes back and tests 80 again. At which point, I put it back on. I put on some more, thinking, okay, now it's time. It went from 500,000 there to 300,000, and now it's gonna. It has a little bit more momentum. Every time it bounced, you know, it couldn't get. It could this time it bounced. It couldn't get back above 81, and then finally, it, it, it you know whatever was left at 80 was taken out, and and at that point, I, I already have some orders out at 79, 78. Just looking to get the covers for a quick flush. Nice. And did you take some of this home over the weekend? Like you didn't cover your full position before the close, did you? No, I I, I was flat. I oh, was you flat. Were flat. Okay. Yeah, I I didn't want to take this over the weekend. Um, I felt like you know the easy trade was was pretty much done. And then come Monday, I felt that I could you know always get back in. If, if I needed to, which I didn't. <laughs> that Monday I had a big drop um, and I missed the initial drop. I remember that. That was a pretty big miss, but uh, there was a lot of follow through. I, I traded afterwards after the open, but that initial drop I did miss. So maybe I could have I could have kept some for over the weekend. That would have been nice. And even in after hours, it traded lower. I think it, it went lower by another couple of dollars in after hours. That reminds me of the Facebook IPO. You know, it was uh, forty dollars, and all day it was trading at forty, and forty was the the offering price, and it was being stabilized. Forty dollars all day long, it, it was just being defended. I think it was by Goldman and and all the big bankers. They were there, and there was a lot riding on you know Facebook IPO not not being a dud, and it just traded millions and millions of shares. There were millions of shares displayed on the bid at 40 and they just, they don't want you to sell. <laughs> and then um, they held it and, and they held it and then it didn't crack until after hours. And that was the end of that. Uh, okay. So given the fact that you've traded a whole bunch of different IPOs, was there anything 
uh, unusual about this one? No, I can't really think of anything unusual, you know. Um, I can't really think of much that really stood out at me. It was just pretty clean price action, high interest by the public, um, lots of liquidity, and, um, you know, it already got me thinking about Uber and, and what we're going to do with Uber. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any uh, – is there any idea on when Uber is about to list? I don't know. Hopefully sometime soon. I, I think it's supposed to be this year. And um, that one is going to be a little bit tough to, to figure out. I know that there's been a lot of trading in, in – I forget what you call them – the private market between people who already own Uber. Um and I don't think the price has been doing too well with Uber in, in the third market. Do you think they might be deterred by having seen what happened to the Lyft IPO? <laughs> They've been deterred for a while, yeah. I don't think they're too happy with what happened to Lyft. And kind of Lyft beat them to the punch. But uh, yeah, I, I think people are going to be a little bit more selective with Uber. And um, a buddy of mine, I remember last year, called me up and said, uh, Mike, how do I buy Lyft shares pre-IPO? I said, honestly, I don't know, but I can make some calls, find out for you. And I ended up calling someone that was, was dealing with this, and um, he offered him certain shares, and he's, but he didn't end up doing it because the liquidity is so low you know, before it goes public. But the guy kept saying how prices are dropping. It's a buyer's market for Uber shares. Do you – I mean, this – I don't know. You've obviously seen a lot more IPOs than I have, <laughs> but this kind of – like you said, there wasn't really anything too unusual about this. It seems that a lot of IPOs, they do get dumped and sold down for the first few days. But then there's often kind of a turnaround play comes at, at some point. Will you track this stock to, you know, for those sorts of trades? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, a lot of the IPOs over the last few years, the quality of the companies, I don't think has been that great. If you think about it, the amount of IPOs we've been getting has been decreasing. And the quality of the companies that are listing aren't, is not that good. If you're a private company, most are probably saying they don't want to deal with the regulations, they don't want to deal with the public and shareholders and all the scrutiny that comes with being a public company. If they need capital and they need access to liquidity, there are, you know, the private equity firms are a lot more prevalent these days. They have a lot more capital behind them. And I think the chances are most don't want to be bothered with being a public company. You know, so the quality of some of these IPOs has not been that great. So a lot of times you do get that initial sell-off. But, you know, then you have some of these other names that when they come out, if they're if they hold the first day's prices and instead of selling off all day, either they go up or they hold the price and go sideways, you know, there's a lot of upside there because there's no ceiling. There isn't anybody who's stuck long and is looking to sell at the first chance they get, right? In Lyft, there's probably a lot of people who are stuck long between, I don't know, 85 and 88, 80 and 88, right? So what the first few bounces you're going to get, you're going to have a lot of selling pressure there, right? They're kind of going to act as a ceiling. So it could be some time until... Lyft could get through and make high, high all-time highs, right? But if on day one, day two, the stock just trades really well and and holds prices and then starts to, to drift higher, everybody who owns the stock is sitting pretty. They're, they're not acting as a ceiling. They're actually, you know, all happy and, and looking to buy more, 
right? So a stock, when, it, when, when IPOs come out, if, if they're acting well and, and they're holding well, that's a nice long trade, you know, a day or two after, as long as it keeps going. And there, there are lots of examples like Twilio and Tilray and, and so many of them that when they hold well, they could have a nice move. Right. So, have you been trading in and out of Lyft, you know, over the past week? It's been online for a, uh, probably almost, what, five trading sessions now. Um, have you been continuing to trade this or have you moved on to something else? On day two, I had a few trades in it. I missed the initial drop. Uh, that was the easy trade. Um, I did have, let me think, I think $70. I traded it a little bit, but it wasn't. I wasn't very active in it. And so many other guys in a firm definitely have been trading it more actively, but I kind of pretty much moved on. Okay. Now, as we spoke about your trade on day one of this IPO, there were, there were kind of three main trades. So there was the, the short first thing um, out of the gate. There was the long off the $80 level, and then there was the short through the $80 level into the close. Where was the bulk of your P&L made? Like, did the bulk come from that first initial sell-off or was it evenly split through the three trades? How did it, how did it um, play out? So, I'm pretty sure the bulk was made on the first trade. Yeah, definitely. The first trade on the first short, that was a big drop. That was where most of the P&L was made. On the long side, it was a small winner. Um, almost a break even, you could call it. And then there was there was a decent trade on, you know, going through eighty. That was that was also pretty good. But the bulk of it was definitely um, two thirds of it was on the, on the initial trade. Right. Okay. Um, are there any other things you'd like to talk about with regard to this trade, or maybe even trading IPOs in general? I'm just looking at my notes here, and I think I've kind of asked you everything I wanted to about it plus some so yeah are there any other thoughts you had on this I think that uh, just the only other thing I'll mention is that the the public when they're trading they just have to realize what they're buying and and still valuation counts and don't get too caught up in the hype uh, as traders the best way we could trade is just to to decide what we want to do and then if if price confirms it you know, you, you can tackle it. Otherwise, just hopefully take a small loss and move on and maybe even participate on the other side. But that's the main takeaway from me from, from this trade is that if, if your thesis lines up with the price action, great, right? You're going to nail it. But if it doesn't, then, you know, you better run the other way and, and not fight. If, if you're going to fight it, then, you know, you're going to get hurt. Like, and I know, I know that Everybody who trades is going to get hurt. Everybody takes losses. Um, you know, you might, might not seem that way on social media, but uh, everybody takes losses. And mm-hmm. the key is to just go running the other way whenever, whenever it doesn't work. And you know, everybody has these these moments where we don't do that, and um, you know, losses get out of hand. I, I don't think any trader can say that they've never been through that or that they never will again go through a scenario like that but the key is to just minimize that and hopefully um, just run the other way when it doesn't work Mm -hmm. there was actually one last thing I did want to ask you Mike Um, I'm not sure if you'll have an answer for this but 
you know, realistically, when you look back on this trade and look back on this day, do you feel as though there was anything that you could have done better? And don't feel as though, I mean, don't feel as though you need to say there is if there, you know, maybe isn't it, you know, it looks like <laughs> you did very well. So don't feel as though you need to make something up just to sound humble. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Look, as, as traders, we're always going to be pissed off, right? You make money, you're pissed off because you should have made more. You lose money, you're, you're always upset. Um, I think I traded this well. I think... There's definitely more money I could have made. Maybe with my initial trade, uh, I could have covered a little bit better and waited. But no, I think that I followed my plan. I tried to play the dollar figures. When it was working, I was in it. When it worked, I added. And then um, I tried to trade around a core, which is my plan. And then I tried to stretch out as much as I could and stay as long as I can with this targeting 80, targeting 75. When we lost momentum, Near 80, I got out. So, yeah, in hindsight, there's so much that we could have done better. I mean, I'm a trillionaire in my hindsight account, but <laughs> um, I think I did okay with this. I, I can't really think back to an error that, that I, I didn't want to change. Nice, nice. Cool, man. Well, I'd love to chat about the PTI trade, but I think, <laughs> you know, as we've gone for about an hour on this, maybe we should do that in another episode um, because I, I think this was really good. I've, I've enjoyed That's sort good. of the different kind of format and, and just really pulling apart this, this one particular trade. So, you know, maybe we can set up a time uh, at some point to talk through the, the PTI trade example. Absolutely. Sounds good. I love being on and um, I think you do a great service for, for the community. We get a lot of great feedback. I know when Stan was recently on, uh, we got a ton of great feedback and uh, just keep up the good work. I appreciate being on and love to be back anytime. Cool, cool. Yeah, that's good. Um, yeah, Stan was uh, Stan was an awesome guest and anyone who's hearing this episode, if you haven't heard that episode with Stan, make sure you go and listen to that. There's a lot of great information in that episode. Um, episode 171 or thereabouts, something like that. Go check it out. But um. Anyway, Mike, I do want to say I really appreciate you making the time to, to to do this. I know we're doing this immediately after the close, so you've had a long day. Um, <laughs> if someone wants to follow you on Twitter or find out more about you, uh, where's the best place to do so? So our website is sevenpointscapital.com. We have the Twitter and Instagram, and that's at sevenpointscap. We have the YouTube videos, which we do the trader takeaways nightly. That's starting to get a lot of traction, and that's also seven points cap. And my handle is uh, Michael underscore Cats one one, and that's on Twitter. Very good, cool. Okay, Mike. Once again, thank you very much for doing this. Let's call it a wrap. Thanks, Sam. Take care. You've reached the end of this episode of Chat with Traders. But rest assured, there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes. And we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders.